Escape Pod, 439, March 13, 2014. Cradle and Dume by Jeffrey W. Cole. Hello and welcome to Escape Pod, your weekly science fiction audio magazine. I'm your editor, Norm Sherman. This week's story is Cradle and Yume by Jeffrey W. Cole. Jeff's published over 20 short stories that have appeared in Clark's World, Electric Velocipede, Imaginarium 2012, the year's best Canadian speculative writing, and other fine magazines. His stories have been translated into Spanish, Italian, and Romanian. He has degrees in biology, engineering, and he's pursuing a master's in creative writing at the University of British Columbia. He lives with his wonderful wife, baby boy, and giant dog in Vancouver, Canada. Visit Jeff at www.jeffreywcole.com. This story was originally published in issue number one of the relaunched Michael Moorcock's Cox New Worlds magazine, and Jeff says it was inspired by the over 100 uncontacted tribes that still exist in our modern world today. Survival International is an excellent NGO that advocates for these uncontacted peoples. The story is read to you by Jeff Romner, a voice actor, audio engineer, and sound designer. His works appeared in radio and TV spots, non-commercial narrations, and on those annoying in-store supermarket PA systems. Cleverly disguised as a mild-mannered hospital IT manager during the day, he lives in the San Francisco Bay Area. So buckle up and get ready to explore, because it's story time. Cradle and Yume by Jeffrey W. Cole When his creators first booted Cradle those long centuries ago, they told him many things that made a lasting impression on his infant mind. Above all was the commandment, The Camaray must never be contacted. If you don't let me in, she will die, Yume said. After all these years, you still ask, Cradle said. I thought post-humans were supposed to be hyper-intelligent. On the banks of the dry riverbed that wound through the village, Tehana struggled through her thirty-fourth hour of labor. Her emaciated brown skin glistened with sweat. The midwife, her only companion in the palm-roofed hut, packed cool mud on Tehana's forehead. There was nothing else for the pain. Like the river, the wells were dry, and the medicinal crop had failed along with the corn. Cradle and Yume watched all this from the observation station buried within one of the Andean peaks that towered above Tejana's village. "'Drop your fields now,' Yume said. "'This is my last warning.' "'Warn away,' Cradle said. "'There's nothing I can do about it.' "'Then you've left me no choice.' Cradle was embarrassed to engage in this banter with three other visitors in the observation station, but they seemed to enjoy the drama." The tourists pointed and whispered as Yume departed. He ran down the long tunnel that led to the landing pad, where he climbed into his sky skiff and pointed the vehicle toward the valley. Cradle watched Yume's fit from a thousand different eyes scattered around the valley. The young posthuman's persistence never ceased to amaze him. He tried to shout a final warning. I can't let you... And that's when the bomb Yume had left in the observation station exploded. You are the valley, Cradle. You are their home, but they must never know it. 
Yume's reputation reached Cradle long before the young post-human had first dropped out of orbit to visit the people. His name made many headlines. The liberator of the entombed Kalistan Alls, the forger of the Asteroid Miners' Union, the last great freedom fighter. It was only a matter of time before he knocked on Cradle's door. Unlike most of Cradle's other visitors, who jumped into one of the many spare post-human bodies kicking around on Earth, or who visited virtually, Yume rode the space elevator in person to visit the valley. When Yume entered the observation platform that first day, his camouflage fatigues and red beret seemed right at home in the replica longhouse that served as the entry hall. Cradle, whose body was the network of processors, sensors, memory matrices, and field generators that existed below the surface of the valley, appeared in the longhouse as a hologram. He chose the appearance of a Camaray shaman, a loincloth, shins and forearms tattooed in red ochre, and a drum slung over his shoulder. "'Welcome to the Octuri Valley,' Cradle said, home of the last uncontacted tribe. "'Cut the crap,' you may said, "'and show me everything.' Cradled open perspective windows into the 200 square kilometers the people called home. All of this information was available digitally from Cradle's data feed, but he showed it to Yume anyway. He explained briefly how the people came to call the valley home. During the construction of the space elevator, the Camaray were living in the jungle that was to become the elevator's main airstrip. When the bulldozers arrived, the Camaray fled to this valley, and once their plight was recognized, the preserve was established. A portion of the fee for every kilogram that climbed to orbit went toward maintaining Cradle and his protective systems. After the history lesson, Cradle gave presentations on the Camaray diet, architecture, religion, and social hierarchy. You may observed it all in silence. Only when Cradle opened a perspective window that showed Tehana, just fourteen at the time, weaving grass into baskets by the muddy river, had you may said anything. Wait, is is this live? She works as we speak. She is the most human person I've seen. He watched her work for several long minutes. With her sisters and cousins, Tehana sorted through the grass, naked save the tattoos on her shoulder blades. So much of the grass was brown and brittle, but she found a green blade that came out with its roots intact. You can't keep these people trapped in here. This sometimes helps, Cradle said. Don't think of them as trapped. Think of me as the wall they erected to keep everyone else out. This is what they chose. Maybe their ancestors did hundreds of years ago, but times have changed. Drop your fields. They must not be contacted. I'm warning you, old-timer. You don't want to mess with me. A threat, Cradle said. How adorable. You may stalked out of the observation platform. I'll be back, he said. Cradle hadn't doubted it for a moment. Your weapons are for defensive purposes only. Six months after Yume's first visit, Tehana journeyed to the river source. She made the trek alone through jungle filled with vipers, jaguars, spiders, and all manner of poisonous flora. At the place the river trickled from the ground, she set up a small camp and threw her fish hook into the pool. All she had to do was catch a fish, smoke it, bring it back to the chief, and she would be a woman. Yume arrived at the observation platform with 70 other post-humans, all of them in the flesh. Cradle hadn't seen so many people on his grounds in over a century. 
While his entourage cheered, Yume marched into the longhouse and placed a petition on the visitor's book. Over seven million people, a third of the post-human population remaining on Earth, demanded that Cradle open his borders and let the people out. There's no reason to protect them any longer, Yume said. We have molecular control of our bodies. Disease is a thing of the past. Violence is unthinkable. The last murder occurred two centuries ago. We can offer them practical immortality. His entourage cheered. You fail to understand, Cradle said. They chose this, not me. Then let me ask her myself, you may said. I will offer her the choice between immortality and the certainty of dying after twenty miserable years. On your first visit, I showed you the presentation of their religious beliefs, didn't I? Cradle said. He nodded. Then you already know the answer. To the Camaray, every human not of their stock is Hature, a devil clothed in human flesh. She wouldn't even tolerate standing in the same square kilometer as you. They haven't seen other people for almost seven hundred years. They still can't cling to their ancient superstitions. They see shipments moving up the elevator every day, the bright lights of the orbitals in the night sky, the transit of sky skiffs, hypersonic contrails. They know us, you may. They chose to remain apart. Now leave, before I eject you. As you may led his people back to their sky skiffs, the float on Tejana's line bobbed on the surface of the sacred pond. She set the hook and brought in her catch. Within minutes, she had it gutted and roasting over a smoky fire. She'd be a woman soon. Your weapons will be obsolete within years, so you must upgrade. Your processors, your defenses, your weapons, your redundancies. You must never fall behind. The day Tehana began the month-long cleansing prior to her wedding night, Yume led a mountaineering expedition across the Andes toward the valley. She moved to the outskirts of the village, across the fields of bean and melon, to a small hut her sisters had made for her, in which they'd woven fragrant kohamaria blossoms. There she braided the first of twenty-eight bone beads into her hair. The twenty-eighth she'd braid into her hair the day she and Fora were married. With each bead Tehana braided into her hair, Yume made further progress across the knife-edged peaks. Each member of the team wore layers of intelligent fabric designed to make them invisible, but cradle scanners penetrated their clever cloaking. He didn't stop them, though. He enjoyed watching their progress. After Tehana braided the third bead into her hair, Yume lost two of his five-person team when an avalanche rolled down a slope and buried the post-humans in several meters of snow. Yume didn't even bother going to look for them. The people who lived inside the bodies would have already rebooted somewhere in orbit or on Earth where they stored their minds. Yume lost another expedition member to plain stupidity. During a heavy snowstorm, one of his crew simply stepped off a cliff. Tehana had some difficulty with the seventh bead. She'd eaten a hallucinogenic root earlier that day, and her fingers wouldn't obey. On that day, Yume reached the outermost of Cradle's many fields. Yume took a device from his bag. A tingling sensation spread across what Cradle thought of as his arm. The clever bastard was trying to drill a hole through his force field. Though he admired the man's tenacity, he didn't wait any longer. Cradle extended his fields and plucked the two remaining members off the mountain. 
He carried them like a pair of wayward kittens back to the space elevator's base. "'Don't you have someone else to liberate?' Cradle said. Yume brushed himself off as he walked toward the elevator. He spoke over his shoulder. "'Everyone else is free.'" They fled missionaries, slavers, miners, loggers, hunters, petrochemical prospectors, DNA harvesters, and purity cults. Two years later, while Tehana tossed in the agony of labor, Yume detonated his bomb. The explosion destroyed the observation platform and the bodies of the people therein. Yume flew away from the damage he'd caused, toward the valley where Tehana suffered in labor. Cradle reached out with one of his weaker fields and stopped Yume's skyskiff in midair. You didn't really think I'd keep any sensitive systems in the observation platform, did you? She's dying, you monster, Yume said. I can save her! She would never let you. Cradle bent his fields around Yume until the young post-human was quite contained. Then he placed him on the landing pad while he set about putting out the fire in the observation platform. Inside the palm-roofed hut, the baby was coming. Tehana pushed in time to the midwife's reassuring words. Her sweat and blood dripped through the woven grass mattress on which she lay. When the baby screamed its first breath, Tehana breathed her last. Cradle felt obliged to tell Yume the unfortunate news. It sent the post-human into a rage. He beat the invisible walls of the containment field in which Cradle held him. He cursed Cradle's programming. He swore revenge. After a while, he quieted and curled up into a ball. I really am sorry, Cradle said. He tried to find enough post-humans interested in forming a jury to try Yume for his crimes, but no one responded to his requests. Even the three who'd had their bodies destroyed in the explosion weren't interested. They'd all planned on sublimating soon anyway and considered the explosion a sign to take that final plunge. Where do they go? Cradle asked Yume in his confinement. Damn cowards are leaving the physical world, Yume said. Some hide in processing cores buried in the hearts of stable moons. Others code themselves into the quantum fabric of space and drift out through the cosmos. Why don't you join them? As Deb said, while there is a soul in prison, I am not free. In the end, with no jury, Cradle had no choice but to let Yume go. He unwrapped the containment field at the base of the space elevator. I never want to see you here again, Cradle said. Understand? I could have saved her, Yume said. To even speak with her, would be to damn her. Build a place where others may study the people's language, customs, religion, and even their biology, but ensure the people never know they are studied. Five years after the explosion, Cradle completed the last touches on the new and improved observation station. He posted notices for the grand opening celebrations in all the normal post-human journals and stitched together a symphony of traditional Camaray music that he would play on the final day of the week-long celebration. On the first day of the opening, he even rented a spare post-human body to wear, something he hadn't done in ages. No one came. Perhaps it was just as well, he told himself. 
the people weren't doing well anyway. The drying trend that had started almost a decade earlier continued. The corn and bean, when they survived to harvest, were stunted and dry. The populations of the many animals that the men hunted, geese, guinea pigs, chinchillas, and vicuna when they could find them, had entered a steep decline. But he had to admit he'd expected their plight to bring Yume back for the opening. Cradle looked in on Tehana's daughter. A stringy, quiet girl nearing her fifth birthday, Mieri had become a master grub finder. On the screen, her aunts asked her to go fetch some kindling for a fire. Instead, when she arrived beneath the dry trees, she dug in soft soil until she came up with thumb-sized maggots. These she devoured on the spot until she'd had her fill, and the rest she brought back to her aunts. They reproached her for forgetting the kindling, but when she left, Cradle could tell they adored her for it. Cradle posted the footage of Mieri to his data feed. So few subscribers still paid attention to his updates, but Yume had to be one of them. Why didn't he come for her? On the last day of the grand opening week, Cradle played the symphony to an empty longhouse. The notes echoed down the new tunnel to the landing pad. Cradle followed the music out and stared at the sky. No one came down the elevator. No sky skiffs approached. He checked the slopes of nearby mountains and his tunneling sensors buried throughout the valley. Nothing. Cradle sent the body back to the rental agency. We've sealed the only entrance to the valley. You must watch for invaders from the air or from below. Mieri, pregnant and famished, led her small family to the great barrier wall that sealed one end of the valley. Cradle's creators had built the wall from the mountains they dismantled during the construction of the space elevator. Mieri sent her nimbler sons climbing the overgrown debris and her smartest daughters up trees. The boys reported that all the routes ended in sheer walls. The girls could spot no passes or valleys, nor did any rivers cut through the wall. It looked impassable. Cradle watched it all in mounting desperation. His ancient programming forbade him to alter the valley's climate. The Camry were to exist on their own terms, even if those terms led to their extinction. Mieri and her family returned to what remained of the village. They shared baskets full of grubs with the rest of the tribe, who stuffed them greedily into their dry mouths. Even now you keep them trapped in the valley, you may said. Cradle startled out of his depression. It had been so long since anyone contacted him. He traced the message routing back to its origin, an otherwise empty O'Neill cylinder orbiting at over 32,000 kilometers, almost directly overhead. Yume sat in geosynchronous orbit above the valley. From his data feed log, he knew at least one other person still paid attention to the Camaray, and in a way, he'd always hoped it was Yume. I was beginning to think you'd sublimated, Cradle said. Have you been watching them this whole time? Watching them starve, Yume said. This won't last much longer. Another year, maybe two, no more. Then what will you be? The rains will return, Cradle said, and he hoped it was true. Let them out. They must not be contacted. Who said anything about contact, Yume said. 
Don't drop your borders. Expand them. So this is your trick, Cradle said. I wondered what tactic you'd employ next. It's no trick, you may said. Liberty is no game. Give them more room, you old subroutine. The nearest post-human is 1,200 kilometers away, and she spends most of her time buried inside a Mayan temple complex. What's your angle, Cradle said. Yume didn't respond. As much as he wanted to ignore the young post-human suggestion, it wouldn't leave his mind. Whenever he saw one of the people digging in the dried mud of the river for the frogs half-mummified therein, he was tempted. So he broadened his perceptions. He extended his sensors into the surrounding jungles and discovered, to his surprise, that what Yume said was right. No posthumans remained. Cradle began tearing down the debris pile with which his creators had sealed the valley. The resulting earthquake sent the malnourished people running terrified into their parched fields. As they calmed, Cradle relaxed the tight grip his fields held on the valley, expanding it to fifty kilometers outside its previous radius. Weeks later, one of Mieri's sons reported that the way out of the valley was clear. The chief, one of Tehana's now ancient sisters, told Mieri that she would become Haturi if she left their ancestral home. Go, Cradle wished to say to her. I've opened the way for you. The next morning, Mieri led her family to the end of the valley without looking back. As they descended the long slope away from the valley, her daughters spotted green jungle and a wide river below. I didn't think you had it in you, Yume said. I love them more than you ever could. When they arrived at a place where the river slowed to a gentle pool, Mieri cast her line into the dark waters. That night, the people ate fresh fish. They fought with other tribes who came too close to their territories. All those tribes are gone. Give them North America, Yume said. What harm could it do now? Yume projected his personality as a digital avatar inside Cradle's newest observation station, this one inaccessible from the surface. Cradle stood with him, represented as a digital shaman. A perspective window opened between them. At the overgrown heart of Medellin, a city several hundred kilometers south of the sediment-filled scar that had been the Panama Canal, two of Tejana's descendants debated the fate of a statue of a long-dead mayor. Louis, the burly chief of the tribe, advocated for the destruction of the statue. Even graven images made by the Hattori contained an essence of their evil, and they should be destroyed. Most of the gathered tribe agreed with him. Amieri, his cousin twice removed, and as burly a woman as Louis was a man, wished to preserve the statue. Like a growing number of the people, she preferred to study the remains of the Hattori civilization to learn as much as possible about the evil ones. Louis's men lashed long ropes to the statue so they could pull it down at dawn when the earth was most pure. During the night, Amieri and her younger followers tied themselves to the statue. I've scoured every square kilometer of the continent, you may said. There are no posthumans left. There's one, Cradle said, and he's a known troublemaker. Over the years, he and Yume had relocated along with the people. Cradle had burrowed down into the earth, through the flimsy crust and into the fiery mantle. He took with him his processing cores, memory matrices, field generators, everything he was, 
and he built himself a home entirely inaccessible to the people, where he could monitor the entirety of South America, which now belonged to them. Yume had dropped out of orbit and spent most of his time roaming about North America. Surely after almost two centuries you've forgiven my youthful indiscretions. Programming is programming, Yume. They must not be... Oh, save it, Yume said. If I hear that again, I'll go insane. Fine, I'll leave. Where would you like me? Europe would be good. Australia better. How about Hawaii? So long as you stray no closer than Loihi. The moment Yume's sky skiff left American soil, Cradle expanded his borders north of the old Panama Canal. At dawn, Chief Louis's men found Amieri and her youngsters lashed to the statue. Louis, with the elder's approval, declared that by embracing the statue, Amieri and her followers were Haturi. They were slaughtered before the sun crested the horizon. They are the only people who live outside post-human civilization. In the overgrown remains of Mexico City, Ilmieri, the tribe's archaeologist, lifted another glass goblet from the lake sediment in which he'd found it. He scrubbed the mud off the goblet's base. There it was, the same message he'd found on a hundred other pieces of pottery the ancients had left behind. He took it home to his wife that night and showed her the dangerous words written in the ancient Camaray language. We are not your enemy, merely your cousins. Look for us in the stars, for that is where we have fled. His wife begged him not to share it with the rest of the tribe. A direct message from the Hatori was dangerous. But Ilmeiri could no longer keep what he'd found to himself. He gathered his people together and presented his evidence, after which he was arrested. A short trial followed, and then he was beheaded. You may, Cradle roared. On a craggy Loihi beach, his surfboard in the black sand, you may rolled off his back and looked to the east. I know, I know, he said. They are not to be contacted. Cradle's fields bristled around the sunburned post-human. You know nothing, Cradle said. Look what you've done. He lifted Yume, the first time he'd handled him in such a manner in centuries, and showed him the footage of the archaeologist's execution. Yume struggled for some kind of a response. When none came, Cradle forced him to keep watching. The archaeologist's body was thrown to the dogs outside town. But then... Something unexpected happened. That night, Ilmieri's wife and several others retrieved the corpse. They carried it far out of town and buried him beneath an ancient tree. Together, they whispered the words Ilmieri had discovered. They vowed that Yume's message wouldn't be forgotten. I will always mourn him, Yume said. But now, at least, they can make an informed choice. Cradle wanted to throw him into a swarm of hammerhead sharks and hold him there until every piece of him had been devoured. But Cradle's rage was more than just anger over the archaeologist's death and Yume's subversion. Though he had trouble admitting it, Cradle was jealous. Yume had done the one thing he could never do. Yume had talked to the people. He released the post-human. Yume waded out into the sea. 
he didn't bring his surfboard. Instead, he let the ocean, whose waves were more ancient and more powerful than any force-field cradle could generate, slam his immortal but not impervious body again and again into the rocky beach. They always chose isolation. Tejana and Mieri's progeny landed ships on the gold coast of Africa, and then Portugal. They walked across the ice to Greenland, and in the opposite direction of their distant ancestors, they walked into Siberia. Yume, who recovered slowly from the ocean's beating, often digitally visited Cradle in his home beneath the Earth's crust, where the two of them would argue as they watched the people reclaim the globe. With each new land the people rediscovered, Cradle moved Yume's physical body further and further away. From Loihi to the Kauai Atoll, then the Galapagos, Easter Island. Yume left no more messages for the people. But the archaeologist's wife made good on her vow. Yume's message spread. A schism in the Camaray faith resulted, with the new branch rejecting the profanity of the Haturi. A new group of secular thinkers emerged who advocated finding their lost cousins. It was during one of Yume's visits that Tehana's distant grandson rolled an airplane out of the barn in which he'd built it. Yume laughed. If that contraption flies, they'll be in orbit soon enough, he said. You can't hide a whole island from them. Surely your programming won't allow that. I'll give them the whole globe, if only you'll leave it, Gradle said though he regretted the words as he said them. "'What would you do without me?' Yume said. I "'Retire, I suppose,' Cradle said. In truth, he had a hard time imagining the world without Yume in it, to defy him. "'My task is to prevent any post-humans from contacting the people. As best either of us knows, you are the only post-human remaining on Earth, or in orbit, as far as my fields can extend.' I won't leave, he said. Cradle paused. For many decades now, he'd been wondering how to ask this next question. On the screen, Tejana's distant grandson started the airplane's engine. There is a place you could go where you could keep watching them, Cradle said. But once you go there, you'll never be able to leave. What are you asking, Cradle? We would have to destroy your body, Cradle said but there's plenty of room for you in my processing cores. The aircraft rolled along a wide green field, the pilot's face fixed in concentration. If you swore to release your hold on them, you may said, I would think about it. Cradle considered the offer. With Yume, the only post-human remaining in existence, his ancient programming might allow him to release the people. But to finally let them go, after so long? Through the perspective window, Tejana's grandson climbed into the air on fragile cloth wings. So long as I hold you, Cradle said, I won't need to hold them. You'd confine me then, forever? Only if you wish it. You are their choice. The woman who sat on top of the rocket had Tejana's eyes and Mieri's tenacity. In her ears, the countdown started at one minute and proceeded. Beneath her, her seat began to shake as the rocket's engines ignited. 
Deep beneath the surface of the earth, Cradle's fields turned inward and focused all their energies on preserving the processing core in which he and Yume now lived. Together, they stood in the virtual longhouse, perspective windows showing the rocket's fiery birth. I still think I should have left them a message on the moon, Yume said. They'll figure it out on their own, Cradle said. Now be quiet, would you? I don't want to miss this. Surrounded by molten fury, they watched as the people reclaimed the stars. And that was our story. Hope you enjoyed it. Let's go now to episode feedback with Escape Pod's assistant editor, Nathan Lee. Take it away, Nathan. Greetings and salutations, Escapodians. Assistant Editor Nathan here with the feedback for episode 435, Made of Cats, by Judith Tarr. This was the story of the aliens who decided to fix all of our cats by making them as cute as the internet said we wanted them to be. The reaction was oddly mixed, with a vocal contingent enjoying the story as the fluffy cuteness that it was and widely praising the reading, and an equally vocal contingent that complained that it was fluffy and cute. Windup said, this was fun, and I agree that the narrator was perfect for the story. However, I think if the aliens had actually learned about human desire by searching the internet, they would have given us one weird trick to reduce belly fat instead of wounds. Most of the other people who cited the other things the internet would teach aliens about humans were very insistent that the story should have revolved around porn instead of wolcats. This prompted Potato Knight to respond, This story was a joy for me. To the extent it lacks things the rules say a story needs to have, that is an indictment of the rules rather than the story. For those mentioning pornography, the story addressed the issue, albeit obliquely. Quote, What humans want is each other, too, but humans do that so well themselves. The other thing we could give, we could make even better. Close quote. And what humans want is each other is about the most affirming way of referring to internet pornography I've ever heard. But Slick also had some thoughts on that front, saying... For those that thought a study of the internet would have resulted in something other than cats, okay, I suppose, but you're likely giving the aliens too much credit. Marketing often doesn't bother with exhaustive, comprehensive research, more of a thrown spaghetti on the wall tactic. Besides which, the aliens didn't even bother to ask, they just morphed all the cats. Clearly, they didn't research how people would react. New Coke will be embraced by all. This remark prompted Thunderscreech to create an image that, in a just world, would be as widely recognized as Maru, or at least Advice Dog. Check it out. Oh, you don't have a forum account? Come on, they're free. You get to tell everyone why they're wrong. What could be better? So calm. Very discussion. Wow. Join us next week, when the comments for episode 436 fail to spell cheeseburger in a humor-inducing manner. See you then. Thanks, Nathan. All right, folks, that's our show this week. Remember, Escape Pod relies on the donations of listeners such as yourself to pay our authors and keep the show going each week. Consider making a donation to Escape Pod if you have the means. Any little bit helps. Go to escapepod.org and find our support options there to the right. Escape Pod's a production of Escape Artists Incorporated. It's brought to you with a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License, which means don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. Our opening and closing music is by monster surf rock band Daikaiju. Check them out at daikaiju.org. And our closing quotation this week comes from Isaac Newton, who said, I was like a boy playing on the seashore and diverting myself now and then by finding a smoother pebble or a prettier shell than ordinary. 
whilst the great ocean of truth lay all undiscovered before me.